Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to the LSC. Uh, and in particular, welcome to this panel discussion on wise choices, uh, which is sponsored by the, the Forum for European Philosophy uh, in conjunction with the LSE Choice Group. Uh, I have the pleasure of chairing the event this evening. My name's Katie Steele. I'm a faculty member of the Department of uh, Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method here at LSC. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to first introduce our, our four speakers uh, in the order in which they will shortly be speaking. Uh, so first of all... Uh, to my left here, uh, we have Maria Alvarez, who's a reader in philosophy at King's College London. Uh, she works in philosophy of action, uh, including the metaphysics and explanation of action, uh, reasons for action, what counts as uh, reasons for action, also issues of free will and responsibility. Uh, over here we have Christian List, who's a professor of political science and philosophy here at LSE. Uh, he has many interests spanning a number of topics, uh, but of relevant, relevant to this panel uh, is his work on reasons, uh, rationality and choice. Uh, he's recently done some work uh, uh, enriching the, the rather thin consistency-based model in economics of rational choice uh, to allow scope for discussion of reasons. Uh, to my right here is Lisa Bortolotti, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Birmingham. Uh, she works on philosophy of cognitive sciences, uh, especially uh, psychology and psychiatry. And I believe uh, her paper on wise choices, which draws together philosophical and cognitive science work, uh, was actually the, uh, the birth of this panel. Um, uh, and finally, we have Magda Osman, uh, who's a senior lecturer in experimental cognitive psychology at Queen Mary. Um, and she works on uh, cog cognitive mechanisms involved in learning, decision-making, problem-solving, uh, and in complex dynamic environments. Um, so it's a pleasure to welcome our, our four speakers uh, this evening. And without further ado, uh, I'm going to uh, let them uh, each speak for five to ten minutes. Uh, so just to, just to forewarn you, the panel will, uh, everyone will have a chance to speak and then we'll have some uh, dialogue between, between us uh, for 20, 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, and then I'll leave plenty of time for questions from the audience at the end. Um, so, Maria, thank you. take it away. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, let me introduce a topic a little. So, I think we are all generally interested in acting well, doing the right thing, or at least something that is not very wrong. And we like this generally throughout our lives. We like to lead good lives, to live a good life. And part of acting well is making choices, perhaps even if we are very lucky, wise choices. And although it's undeniable that there are many constraints in our choices, uh, it seems that at least sometimes we have the possibility of choosing what to do, how to behave. And when that's the case, we'd like those choices to be, to be right, to be wise, perhaps. And this, of course, raises many questions. What makes a choice good or right or wise? And how, how can we ensure that our own choices are good, that they are wise? 
Well, I think that at least sometimes I'm going to propose that uh, choosing wisely, choosing well, is a matter of choosing things that there, are, there is good reason to choose uh, and not choosing things that there is good reason not to choose. Um, more specifically, if we are thinking of choosing a course of action in, this, in the sense of if we are deciding whether to do one thing or not do it or to do one thing rather than another, then it seems that that choice may be a matter of doing, choosing to do what we have got good reason to do. And as I say, avoid what we have good reason to avoid. So to understand this idea of choosing for a reason, we need to think a little bit about what a reason for doing something is. What is it to have a reason to do something, to have a good reason to do something? So let me propose an idea, a way of understanding reasons for acting. So uh, you can think of a particular action and a reason for doing that thing is some aspect of the action, some feature of the action, or of the circumstances of the action, such that doing that thing is good or is right uh, because it either embodies some value or some good or is a means to that a value or a good. So it may be that something is, there is a reason for doing something, as it were, instrumentally because of some further good that it brings, or it may be that there is a reason for doing something because some feature of this action that... Um, it makes it good. So perhaps, you know, helping someone may be a good thing to do because it's an act of friendship and that may be good in itself. Or buying a ticket for a train is a good thing because it's a means uh, to go on holiday. So the notion of good here is very broad. It's not just morally good and so on. And in fact, when one thinks about the different features or aspects uh, that the actions and the circumstances of actions have that might make them good for us, we realize that they come in very, the goods, as it were, come in very different uh, varieties or from very different perspectives. There are many different kinds of goods. So we might think an action is perhaps good from the point of view of prudence because it's something that will further your health, your well-being generally, or is good uh, from the point of view of morality because it uh, helps to promote justice or is a just act in itself and so on. So actions may be good in all of these respects, hedonically from the point of view of pleasure or morally or uh, prudentially and so on. So we may think of, an action, of a reason for doing something as some feature that picks an aspect of the good, a perspective of the good, if you want. Now, fortunately, uh, these goods that actions have are not mutually exclusive. So doing something may be good from more than one of these perspectives. So I think, you know, exercise may be good because it's enjoyable, so it's a hedonic good, and also prudentially because it's good for your health and so on. So those are the good cases. But unfortunately, there are also cases where doing something may be good in one respect, but bad in another. So I think we are all very familiar with lots of actions, um, say smoking, which is good hedonically, it's pleasurable, at least those who like smoking, but it's bad prudentially because it's bad for your health and so on. So 
That's often when we are faced with choices, when we are considering an action, in fact probably most actions have aspects to them which speak in favour of them, some features which make them good under some of these uh, aspects or perspectives, (coughs) and some features that make them bad uh, or less good from other perspectives. Um, For example, I think uh, an example which I like to because I think it's very clear, and it, I also think it shows that not all aesthetic uh, judgments are subjective. If I think of wearing a helmet when I'm cycling, I think there is very, pruden- very good prudential reason for doing that, because it diminishes the dangers of serious uh, injury if I have an accident, but I think there are fantastically good aesthetic reasons not to wear a helmet, because they are very horrible, nobody looks good in them, and certainly nobody looks better in them than, some, than they do without them. So you, you, know, you are cycling, and then you have to choose, shall I wear a helmet or not? And you, what we do is weigh, weigh up the features of the action or the circumstances, the reasons that there are for and against doing it, and we do so in terms of viewing aspects of the good. So if you think about the few ideas that I've introduced, then you can see that our choices require us, first of all, to understand uh, as many features of our actions as we can, which may include consequences, and that's partly why it's sometimes difficult to choose, because (coughs) we can't Uh, We don't know very well all the aspects of good or bad that an action may have. But even when we have pretty good knowledge of the aspects uh, of good, of the reasons that they are for and against, then we have to uh, weigh those and decide whether it's more rational to do one thing than doing another. Christian will tell us a lot about that now. And that will depend roughly on what values, what goods the action has. And also, of course, partly on who we are. So there are all sorts of issues about whether the value is objective or subjective, whether there are two values which one cannot measure against each other. So moral dilemmas sometimes have that kind of feature that there is perhaps a good or a bad that accompanies an act, uh, but the not doing it also brings some sort of disvalue. So you either have to betray your country or your family will suffer. Or putting positively, you could either protect your family or be loyal to your country. And that's sometimes those decisions or choices are dif- difficult because the values are very difficult to measure against each other. Maybe they are incommens- incommensurable. And let me just finish saying something about... Uh, so I've talked about the difficulty or, or the aspect of choosing, which is knowing the reasons there are for and against, and then the aspect of reasoning, weighing the pros and cons. Then we perhaps make a choice, and we know what we want to do. Then there is one more difficulty, which is actually carrying out your choice. So I've decided, I've made the choice that exercising on Wednesdays would be very good. 3 p.m. is a good time. The pool is empty. Uh, It's the time when it'll be fantastic from the point of view of work and so on. Then 3 p.m. comes, and I continue working. It's cold outside. It's raining. And I start thinking, well, maybe it's not so good. It's, you know, 3 p.m. It's not a good time to go swimming, really, after lunch and so on. So there we've made the choice of what the value is, but perhaps we don't carry it off because perhaps we are acratic. We don't do what we believe is, there is most reason to do. And so that's another difficulty with choice to actually carry it out. Okay.
Okay, so I won't be able to answer the question of uh, what uh, wh wise choices uh, require, but I'll talk about some of the concepts um, that uh, are relevant for thinking about wise choices, and, and I think that uh, connects very nicely with uh, what Maria um, just said. So I'll talk about rationality, reasons, and wise choices. So I'll try to address three questions just very briefly in my few minutes. First of all, what is an intentional agent, the kind of agent who makes decisions? Secondly, when is an intentional agent rational? And then thirdly, I'll ask whether wise choices require merely rational choice or whether they require something more than rationality. And if they require more, I'll try to um, pinpoint perhaps what it is that they require. Okay, so let me begin with a question of what an intentional agent is. So in very general terms, an intentional agent is simply some entity or system which has, first of all, beliefs, secondly, preferences or goals, and thirdly, a capacity to act. Broadly speaking, beliefs are um, representations of the world. The agent represents uh, how things actually are. Preferences or goals specify what things the agent seeks to do. They, they specify certain targets or plans that the agent seeks to pursue. And then finally, the agent's capacity to act uh, means broadly the agent's ability to intervene in the world in such a way as to pursue um, his or her beliefs uh, and or goals. Now, human beings are paradigmatic examples of intentional agents in this sense, as should be obvious, but potentially many other creatures could also count as intentional agents, at least in very general terms, or primates certainly do, and even cats and dogs may um, arguably qualify as intentional agents, though agents of a less complex sort than humans. In the future, we might even face sophisticated robots that, that count as intentional agents. Now, this notion of intentional agency still is very general, and so far we have said nothing about rationality. So what does rationality require? When is an intentional agent rational? So initially, rationality really just requires internal consistency in three respects. It requires consistent beliefs. So a violation of consistency in this sense would be a case in which some of the agent's beliefs logically contradict others. So if I believe A and I believe if A then B, and I also believe not B, then um, I'm making a logical mistake. I hold inconsistent beliefs. I'm being irrational, even in my own terms. Secondly, Rationality requires consistent goals or preferences. So a violation of rationality in this sense would be, for instance, a case in which I prefer A over B, I prefer B over C, and yet I also prefer C um, over A. This would be a case in which uh, decision theorists say the transitivity of um, the agent's preferences uh, is violated. And then finally, rationality requires consistent actions based on one's beliefs or goals and preferences. Um, now, there are a number of things one could say about this, but an example of a violation of consistent action would be a failure to do what all things considered I intend to do. If I form an intention to take a particular action, and this is a well-deliberated intention, and if I then fail to act on it, um, then uh, I um, violate um, a particular rationality requirement with respect to action. Now, this notion of rationality understood as internal consistency of the agent's um, intentional states and actions is still a very thin and purely formal notion. So someone could count as rational in this formal sense, even though this person's beliefs or goals, although logically consistent, strike us as rather strange or unreasonable or not very well founded. 
Um, so David Hume already recognized uh, this point, this point that rationality by itself is a very thin notion. In his Treatise of Human Nature, he wrote, and this is a much quoted passage, so I couldn't resist quoting it here, it is not contrary to reason, and by this he means rationality in modern terms, to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my little finger. It is not contrary to reason for me to choose my total ruin. It is as little contrary to reason to prefer even my own acknowledged lesser good to my greater. In short, Hume says, a passion, by this he means a preference or goal, must be accompanied with some false judgment, a false belief, in order to its being unreasonable. And even then, it is not the passion, properly speaking, which is unreasonable, but the judgment. Now, this is a striking passage, and Hume clearly wasn't endorsing the various things listed in this quote, so he wasn't endorsing that we should prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of our little fingers. I mean, that, that would be absurd. Rather, what he was pointing out was that rationality alone cannot easily adjudicate one's goal. So rationality is just a relatively thin consistency notion, which is just not enough to tell us whether the goals that we try to pursue, seek to pursue, are worthy goals, worthy of pursuit. So uh, what this shows already is that wise choices require more than consistency in the thin formal, um, or they require more than rationality in this thin formal sense of consistency. So wise choices go beyond rational choices. So this is my first conclusion. But now let me just very quickly say a few words about what wise choices require. And I, as I said, I, I cannot possibly hope to answer this question. Um, so I, I just want to suggest one particular way one might go about answering this question, and this is very compatible with um, what Maria was, was discussing. So I want to suggest that um, we must inquire into the reasons behind an agent's preferences. We must ask where the agent's preferences come from in order to assess um, the wisdom uh, of an agent's choices. So here is the idea um, in a nutshell. So when an agent chooses between several options, in a simple case this could be consumer goods or it could be bigger things such as career options or universities uh, to, where to study, the agent conceptualizes each option not simply as some kind of uninterpreted primitive object, but instead the agent conceptualizes each option as a bundle of properties, a combination of properties. Each option that we might consider, so each possible good that we might uh, want to get or each possible you know, university that we might uh, uh, consider attending, each of these options can have many different properties. And typically, an agent is not able to consider all of these properties, all of these features, but only a subset. So let's call those properties or features that the agent focuses on the motivationally salient properties of those options. Now, when someone chooses a yogurt in a supermarket, to just give a very simple example, the agent might focus on whether the yogurt is fruit-flavored, whether it is low-fat, whether it is free from additives, whether it is cheap. But uh, typically, the agent will not uh, ask whether the yogurt has an odd number of letters on its label. I mean, you would not really go and look at the yogurt and count the number of letters and see whether it's an even or odd number. That, that, is, that is a well-defined feature of this yogurt, but it's intuitively irrelevant. But also, many consumers won't uh, consider whether this yogurt has been sustainably produced. They won't pay attention to those properties. 
Now the key point is that the very same options can appear in a completely different light depending on how we conceptualize them, depending on which features or properties of those options we focus on when we form our preferences and make our choices. So just to give a few examples. So skiing in a particular resort may look like a fun thing to do until one recognizes that that particular ski resort is environmentally unsustainable and threatens the sensitive mountain ecosystem. So you know, once I pay attention to different properties, I might completely reassess um, my, my attitude towards that option. Similarly, cheap clothes from a particular budget retailer may look attractive until one recognizes that, that they have been produced in a sweatshop with terrible working conditions. So again, paying attention to different properties of those options can lead us to reassess our preferences. Or finally, one's career preferences can change dramatically depending on which properties we value in a job, say money versus intellectual satisfaction, economic status versus social engagement, and so on and so on. Crucially, a theory of rationality alone is simply not able to tell us which properties of the choice options we ought to focus on. A theory of rationality, as I said, by focusing just on, on consistency in this formal sense, is silent on these questions. What we need in order to figure out which properties we ought to focus on is a conception of value. Uh, but rationality alone doesn't tell us what the right conception of value is. So philosophically, I think it's important to distinguish between... Um, on the one hand, an agent's motivating reasons. So those are, or those can be identified in, in my examples here with the properties of the options that the agent actually focuses on, and then the relevant normative reasons, which we can associate with the properties that the agent ought to consider when forming his or her preferences and making choices. So I might actually focus just on the price of a particular product, but perhaps I ought to focus also on some ethical um, properties. This would be an example of a case where uh, my motivating reasons and the right normative reasons uh, come apart, which they very often do. Now, different conceptions of value pick out different normative reasons. They, they specify different properties as, as, the, as the right normatively reason-giving ones. So hedonism, for instance, tells us to consider only happiness-promoting properties. This is a theory of value that, that few of us would, would ultimately want to accept, presumably. By contrast, Aristotelianism tells us to consider properties that are relevant to promoting a well-rounded good life, and that in turn requires much further spelling out. And these are really just two simple examples of, of different conceptions of value. There are many different conceptions of value on offer that each specify different properties or features of, of decision options that we ought to focus on and thereby also give rise to a different notion of what would count as a wise choice. So my conclusion in this short talk, therefore, is that if we wish to make wise choices, we must focus not only on the formal rationality or consistency of our beliefs and preferences. This is what economic decision theory uh, can allow us to analyze, but it's not enough for giving us a notion of wise choices. Instead, we must carefully deliberate about un our underlying conception of value and try to identify which properties we consider truly important and reason-giving. Thanks, Christian. Um, so I think we shift gear a little bit now and, and think about reasons vis-a-vis -vis intuitive versus uh, deliberative choices. Thanks, Lisa. So I think this will follow quite well from uh, what Christian just said. Um, 
So when we're thinking about what wisdom is, there are lots of different answers, and many of them are kind of culturally dependent. But there is also a core um, of uh, what we think about when we think about wise choices, which seems to be accepted uh, almost across the board. So we think about the wise person as someone who makes good choices for for herself, but also can advise other people um, to make good choices too. We think about the wise person as someone who has good knowledge of herself. I think this is quite important, especially knowledge of her own limitations. Um, and, and that helps with making choices that make sense, that fit a certain conception of herself. And we also think about um, the person who is wise as a person who can solve problems, where sometimes these problems are very complex um, and, and can do so in a way that is based on reflection and experience. Um, and in the history of uh, Western philosophy, um, this conception of, of wisdom has always been associated with um, self-knowledge, with the capacity to know oneself, knowing um, one's limitations in particular, and also with the capacity to solve problems. But um, most of the time, the focus has been on reflection, um, and by that I mean choosing by weighing up reasons in much of the way uh, Maria started um, talking about uh, making choices on the basis of reason that someone has to do a particular thing. Um, very little emphasis has been given on other ways of making choices, for instance using emotions or intuitions, and actually the kind of default option, what we find in Plato and Aristotle, although different versions of it, is really that the wise person is the one who can control emotions. It doesn't disregard them entirely, but um, makes sure that reason is in charge and the emotions are controlled. And this is a picture that we still somehow have in philosophy. Of course, much has happened um, between Plato and, and now. But um, we still have this sense that the wise person is the person who can somehow bracket off all the emotions and the intuitions and the gut feelings and stop and think. Maybe with pen and paper sometimes, because sometimes weighing up reasons means to consider advantages and disadvantages of an important life choice. One example that Gigerenzer um, uses in one of his papers is Darwin trying to decide whether to get married. And he had a very, very neat uh, piece of paper with a line in the middle and pros and cons, right? So a con <laughs> was something like, I will have company in the evening, um, and the con would be, I have to tolerate... Um, relatives that I really don't care for. I will have less time for science, but, you know, I may have children, and, and this kind of thing. Now, why is this funny? Because we don't really think we make choices that way. And the point that Gigerenzer was trying to make is that sometimes we shouldn't just pay attention to reasons for and against, but how each individual reason is, whether each individual reason is important to us. So it may be that there are three pros and four cons, but one of the pros is much more important to us. It's much more crucial to our future happiness. And that's where self-knowledge comes back in. Knowing what you need, what you want, is really helping you when you're making life choices. So I think 
it's all fine to think about reasons. And I think that in many situations, that's exactly how we make choices. If we're thinking about which mortgage to go for, whether to accept a job, we sit down and think. We don't do it on the spur of the moment. We ask our friends to help us. Um, but it's also important to recognize that the role of intuition and emotions is important. And I think uh, one way of doing that is really listen to what psychologists have to say. Um, and that's something that philosophers are not very good at, at least until very recently. They haven't been very good um, at. And if we look at what's happening all around us, there is a very um, clear recognition that the role of intuition and emotion in decision-making um, is routinely important in our everyday decisions, but also that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not bad sometimes when we kind of follow the emotional reaction as opposed to sit down and make a list. Um, and that's because it very much depends on the type of choice that we're thinking about and the context in which we are. And why is that the case? The reasons are not always the default option, not always the best option. Well, first of all, because... It is true that we are intentional agents. We are intentional agents with beliefs and with goals, and we are intentional agents because we can use our beliefs and goals to act in the world. But we're not perfect intentional agents. Human agents have limitations. Even in, if we're thinking about the statistically normal limitations, we have limitations in perception, in reasoning, in memory. We cannot remember everything that is important. We cannot really follow um, the principles of reasoning that would make us rational in a certain conception of rationality. But also there are all sorts of other limitations that go beyond the statistically normal. So there may be biases and deficits in perception again, in memory, emotional disturbances, and they all affect the way in which we consider, examine the information that is available to us and the way in which we rank um, that information in terms of reasons for action. So in that particular context, it's not just a, a war, a battle, between what we should be choosing and what we actually do when we choose. So the normative domain, how we could become more wise, more rational, and how we actually choose in everyday situations. That wouldn't be very interesting. We all know that we're not perfect, and actually having an idea of rationality could help us achieve better targets in some way. It could be kind of an aspiration. But it's not really like that. It's that knowing how we actually make decisions can make us better at making decisions because we do realize that the picture where reasons always prevail on emotion or where weighing up options is always the best way to come to a certain conclusion is to be um, challenged um, even in normative terms. Maybe that's not the best for us given that we are imperfect intentional agents. That's the idea. Um, so what I've been really struck in my readings is that sometimes we make really important decisions on the basis of reasons that we are not fully aware of, or at least there is a causal process that leads to our making a certain decision or coming to a certain attitude. But when we are asked about why we made the decision or why we have the attitude, we come up with a completely different explanation, which cannot be possibly the reason why we got to that point. 
And so another thing that I'm interested in is whether we do use reasons to come to decisions, whether we should do it, but also once we have made the decision, are we kind of justify that decision, which is something that Maria touched on, touched on in her presentation, right? Once, you know, I've decided to go to the swimming pool, I'm not going, am I going to say, okay, I've just been lazy? Or am I going to say, no, actually, today is not a very good day to go to the pool because it's not true that it's going to be, it's going to be empty, it's going to be crowded instead. And what this kind of work that we do with reasons, not deliberating but justifying, um, is often called confabulation when we make up reasons just to fit our purposes. And so that's the area where I'm interested in. So uh, how, what we actually do when we make decisions, and here we just look at the evidence that we've got around us, can actually help us develop maybe a normative theory of what it is to be a, a wise person, considering that we are not um, perfect intentional agents, but we are human agents. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so in this uh, very short introduction, I'm going to tackle the very tricky question, uh, which is one that is uh, often made a lot of in the media. So, uh, do we make wise choices, make wise decisions unconsciously? <laughs> so, to start off, at least from a psychological point of view, some of it's sort of based on some of the uh, characterizations of wise choices from the philosophy. Um, making a wise choice, making a choice based on accurate predictions of what would be good for you in the long run, and then acting on that choice. So that would constitute very broadly what a wise choice is. So that is the to go back to a sort of often used example about smoking, so you could be faced with a dilemma, you can continue smoking or stop smoking, um, make, make a prediction on the basis of information around you that uh, actually in the long run there are health benefits if you stop smoking. So then acting on that prediction would be what would constitute a wise choice. Okay, so based on that sort of very broad uh, characterization of what might be a good choice. Uh, how do psychologists try to demonstrate whether this kind of process of thinking is uh, unconscious? So what I'm going to present is a small portion of an experiment that was done by uh, Daxter House and colleagues. This is a very high profile study and it attracted a huge amount of attention and was published in a very, very prestigious journal. So what they did was they presented people with a series of consumer choices. In this case, it was uh, making a choice as to which was the right car to buy, the best car to buy. So they were presented with four options. Now, in this particular setup, uh, the complex center, what they did was they said, right, well, you're going to have to evaluate each of these four cars on the basis of 12 features or 12 properties. Uh, so fuel efficiency, cost, color, miles on the clock, so on. So there was 12 of these things, and you had to evaluate each, four, each of these four cars uh, and then figure out which was the best car on the basis of these different features. So that was the basic setup. 
in the conscious group, uh, they were told, right, now you've got this problem, for the next four minutes, that's all you're going to think about. Don't think about anything else. Focus very deliberately on this problem. Think very hard about it. And then at the end, you're going to have to make a choice as to which of the four cars is the best car to buy. The unconscious group were told, right, now I've presented you the problem, don't think about it at all. <laughs> do something else. So what they got them, what the experimenters got these, this group to do was um, fit in anagrams for four minutes. And then at the end of the four minutes, both groups were then asked, right, which was the best choice, which was the best car to buy. So what you've got here is uh, the proportion of people in either group uh, making the right choice. So without studying the graph very hard, you can see the black bar is higher than the white bar. So basically what that's telling you is that most people in the group that were told to fill in anagrams and not think very hard uh, made the wise choice. So, uh, whereas those people who spent four minutes thinking very hard about this problem um, didn't pick the wise choice as often. So there's a fewer number in that group that actually made the wise choice. So, what that implies is that uh, if you're unconsciously thinking about a very complicated problem, the best thing to do is just leave it to your unconscious. <laughs> right, well, yeah, so you laugh, but uh, actually this, this particular kind of finding has, has made a sort of huge splash, not, not just beyond, I mean, beyond the scientific domain. So it has huge implications for the kinds of uh, suggestions about whether we should be thinking unconsciously, intuitively, relying on our gut, uh, whether experts even rely on their gut feelings to actually make the best choices. So this sort of fits along with that. So the idea is if you don't really think very hard about something that's very complicated, uh, you're better, you can actually make a better choice than if you actually thought very deliberately about that. So the question to you would be, how often would you do that in reality when you're faced with a very, very complicated and highly consequential situation? So I recently looked at all of this kind of work and reviewed it, and uh, my conclusion is rather different from Daxter House's, uh, and that is that uh, we do make choices based on conscious thinking most of the time. Uh, albeit sometimes it can be quick, uh, but what our notion of quick is, and unconscious and automatic, are very different colloquially than what is actually treated as quick or automatic in sort of scientific debate. I would characterise most of this, most of our thinking is actually conscious. Uh, and the choices we make are reason-based, we don't always think very hard about the reasons behind our choices. Uh, and they're value-based, so that does seem to fit very well with most of uh, what has been said already. So we do assign values to the different options that we have and weigh these things up. Not often very deeply, 
but, we, but values often drive the choices that we make. And uh, just to illustrate the point, so in my review of Dax the House and all of that kind of very popular sort of work, this is, these are all of the attempts, and this isn't a full list, by the way, uh, of failures to replicate these kind of dramatic findings. So while they're sort of, you know, they're great headline-grabbing sort of uh, studies, uh, trying to actually, these aren't reliable effects, so trying to demonstrate that making a good choice, a wise choice, uh, without deliberation, without thinking, is very hard to replicate. So I'll, I'll leave that there. Thank you. Thanks, Magda. And uh, thanks to all our speakers. Great. Um, so I'm just going to uh, 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 invite our panel members to have a bit of a dialogue shortly. And I won't, we won't carry on for too long because we want to save a lot of time for questions uh, from the audience. Y yes. What? <laughs> so I have a question for for, okay. for Magnus. Oh no, I, I, I know you're not uh, endorsing the Dijkstrahoy study, but and no. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be interested in some aspects of, of their methodology. So, um, so they suggest that um, the unconscious uh, group um, more reliably makes the wise choice than the conscious uh, decision-making yeah, group. More of that group. Right. right. So I, I wonder, though, how do, do they define what the wise choice is? After all, there are all these different cars, and presumably which car counts as the wise choice for a particular person depends very much on their values and the way they... Uh, um, the, the way they assess these, these different features. So unless there is some objective criterion of, of goodness of these, of yeah. these cars, it's, it's not clear that they, as the researchers, are actually able to, to identify what the, the right wise choice would be. Uh, so they, they set it up so that um, they do identify objective features before the experiments actually run. So they, they want to say that of the portion of 12 options, the things that you should focus on to make a, a good choice about whether the car is the right car to buy is based on handling, fuel efficiency and so on. And there are other things that you should really pay attention to so much, like the colour or whatever. So that there are, they do set up objective features, um, a priori. And then the idea is to see whether people, uh, when they're evaluating those choices... Um, are actually making choices according to these objective features that they've identified. So what they find is that there is a closer correspondence or a match um, with people who don't think um, very hard in the, in the unconscious case. So what I didn't present was that um, they set up a similar version with uh, a reduced number of features. So that, is the, that was the complex case. So the argument is that for complex situations, the idea is that you should be thinking, you, know, you should be leaving it to so you're, you're unconscious to crank away while yeah, you're doing something else. But for very simple uh, choices, so they set up the same thing with four cars, but you only have to think about four features for each of the four cars. And it makes no difference whether you think very hard or you don't think at all. The same number of people make the 
the sort of the objectively right choice. So the, the the critical aspect is the fact that when it comes to something very complicated. Um, it's easier to sort of then pick out the things that are relevant uh, and allow your unconscious to do that because you have to integrate an awful lot of information. So trying to do that consciously is very hard. So their argument is that actually that's best left to uh, your unconscious, which is actually cranking away and sort of integrating information um, uh, at, at an unconscious level. Um, but so I take it uh, you, you're a bit skeptical about this idea of the unconscious, but maybe uh, Lisa's uh, slightly more sympathetic to the idea that some decisions are better made at the intuitive or emotional or unconscious level, right? And I was wondering whether we might explore uh, further reasons for some choices being may be better suited to intuitive choice, right? So clearly cases where time is of the essence, I think we get the sense that intuitive choice is better. So uh, you imagine uh, when you first start out learning how to drive a car, um, everything's very conscious and clunky. You, you know, you're trying to think about the gears and the other traffic and uh, conscious deliberation about the driving doesn't seem to be helpful, right? Uh, but once we, be, you know, we get a lot of practice, become a, an expert, it, it, it flows naturally, uh, and the, and we seem to make better decisions about driving. Uh, maybe because in these cases, time is of the essence, we can sort of remote control certain ways of driving, right? Um, but it seems like not just in those cases, but other cases too, like big decisions, you know, Darwin's choice of marriage, um, choice of career, scientists weighing up important hypotheses. People often say, no, no, it was better to trust your gut feeling, like thinking about it just muddied the waters, right? But is it plausible for those big decisions that it, would, it could be better to reason uh, unconsciously, do you think? Or uh... Yeah, so I think this has been a very polarized debate, which is kind of interesting. Um, and so I think Marta is absolutely right that the message that was coming across after some of the psychological studies was, um, I think, too far in one direction. So the sense was really you're at your best when you're not thinking, right? Um, and I think that's not the way we should be going. I think the way we should be going um, is actually to recognize that in some situations, um, some of our explicit reasons are affected by our emotions and our values, but also our emotions and our previous experience. Um, but so the, the decision will be made um, in combination. So there will be reasons that are, can be assessed in a graph and there can be um, more kind of emotional reactions that are combined. Um, and that, I think, is the message that comes from some philosophers who have been reviewing this evidence. So, for instance, Valerie Tiberius has written a book called The Reflective Life. She comes to the conclusion that the wise person doesn't choose 
always in the same way. It does depend a lot on the context. And for instance, answering your question, one of the contexts where it seems to be bad to just go for the pen and paper solution is exactly the matters of the heart, right? So in, in, in the context of dating or in the context of thinking about what option is best for you, thinking too hard about that kind of thing seems to bring you to the wrong conclusion. And, and I guess the inspiration for that kind of reflection was the famous dating couples um, study, uh, which is actually a series of studies. Um, but the main idea was that people were asked, so people who, were who had been dating for about two, um, three months, so not for very long, uh, were asked why um, they were dating that particular person. But some of them were asked um, in, in a way they would elicit intrinsic reasons for dating that person. So what do you like about that person? And, and some were asked in a way they were eliciting more kind of instrumental reasons. So, you know, is it a good idea for you to be dating this person? Is it convenient? And so on. And then people were asked what, how they felt about their partner and whether they thought they would be dating um, this person in six months' time or something like that, right? And it's really interesting that the people who had been asked the more instrumental reasons were extremely negative when they were assessing their relationship. Um, and predicting that they wouldn't be um, dating this person in six months' time, so that the relationship would be short-lived. But people who were asked to focus on the intrinsic reasons um, thought that you know they were very happy with their partner and they would be together in six months' time, maybe living together or planning for marriage. The thought is here that... Reasons can be easily manipulated, right? So it, it, clearly these people had some uh, thoughts in their head that had been elicited by the, the questioning that had, ban, had been uh, going on before. And so that kind of evidence about the relationship, it wasn't necessarily misleading. There were true things about the relationship, but it was much more evident to them, much more salient to them than other reasons that they had to date that person that were not um, brought uh, up in in the, in the question time, right? So it seems as if thinking consciously um, about a question like that, um, after maybe having, you know, like if, if someone asks you how you feel about your partner just after you have had a fight, you know, then you can do it in a deliberative way, but they won't um, uh, deliver a result that you can be happy with. And actually, when they did check longitudinally, actually the, this, this kind of um, attitudes were not really um, attitudes that were predicting the behavior of people. So people who said we would not be dating, we're still dating, and so on. So they're the kind of attitude that was formed in that way. So one idea is that in these particular circumstances, um, and this, the, the, the risk of manipulation is very high, and the capacity that we have to um, have at the forefront of our mind all the relevant reasons, all the relevant evidence that we care about is quite limited. Um, and so sometimes we, you know, following how we feel about a certain situation would be best. That's not to say that the same conclusion should be carried over a different domain. So it's quite specific to that particular type of choice or... or um, yeah. Well, I just wanted to comment and perhaps ask Lisa, because it seems to me that um, if we are choosing, as we were, following emotions, that does not mean that we are not following our reasons, because sometimes hmm. our emotions are, as we were... I have a student who works on this and is here, uh, as we were tracking our reasons. I mean, you know, we feel positively disposed 
to things which are because we see values in them. And it, I was thinking about Aristotle and Plato, and I think their picture was actually that if you are a virtuous and wise person, then your emotions and your values will be aligned. So you don't need to control your emotions. Your emotions will help your sort of rational choices. Whereas if you are not, as most of us are not, the virtuous people, then there'll be a sort of conflict sometimes between on the one hand, what we judge to be better, and on the other, both our emotional reactions and our appetites, you know, the things we sort of feel up, pull towards. And then they thought, at least you can act well if, you, if your reason can sort of win this battle. But, it's, I mean, I think they did agree with you that there is no real conflict between reason and emotion if you have attained the status of the wise and virtuous person. Of course, that's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I broadly agree with, uh, with ma what Maria just said. I, I, would, um, I would also want to suggest that um, if we try to um, characterize what we take to be the normative ideal that, that we should um, aspire to reach, then... Um, Uh, the right normative reasons play a key role in the specification of what the ideally right choice uh, would be. Now, in reality, since we are um, bounded agents and we are boundedly rational as um, psychology and, and also economics uh, have, have taught us, um, it may very well be that um, uh, we lack the full processing capacities to always... Um, figure out explicitly what would be normatively ideal. And so we rely on certain uh, simplifications or heuristic shortcuts, um, such as following in some cases our uh, instincts or certain uh, simplified cues, which turn out, if everything goes well, to correlate with what the right choice um, would be, even though the right choice is still defined independently in terms of following the right reasons. Um, so let me, let me ask something. So, um, what would you treat? What what do you characterise an intuition as? So, what what do you, <laughs> as philosophers, count intuition as? Because I think from the psychology realm, it's slightly different from you know. So, what you know, where your sort of gut drives you to do something. Uh, actually, your gut does sometimes affect what you, there is an actual link between your gut and your brain, but um, for all sorts of reasons. But um, so, what? How do you? How do you take? What do you characterize that as? Well, I, I tried to give an example, and uh, well, this this is the sort of example that uh, the psychologist Gerd Gigerenzer um, oft, often gives. Um, so, so he suggests that. Um, Medical doctors, for instance, in an emergency room um, are faced with a new patient um, in, in some critical condition, but uh, they are not initially able, of course, to assess all the parameters of this patient. I mean, that would require a very thorough evaluation. Uh, nonetheless, they need to quickly decide what to do. And um, so um, Gigerenzer then suggests that um, very often the doctor might actually do best by just relying on 
a very small number of, of salient symptoms or criteria, which he and his colleagues have investigated in, in great detail. And the claim then is that uh, if, if a doctor just follows some of these simple heuristics or cues, um, they have a relatively high chance of administering the correct emergency right. treatment quickly. Now, I believe that Gigerenzer goes uh, one step too far in the um, sort of philosophical spin he puts on this, because he then suggests that uh, rationality itself, even in the normative sense, somehow requires following these uh, simple cues or heuristics. And, and that's certainly not true, because what would be... Um, best uh, for the patient uh, from an omniscient perspective is of course still determined by uh, a full detailed assessment of the case. It's just that given the pressure and, and the time uh, the doctor lacks the resources in this very moment to, to get that complete picture, yeah. and so that's why he or she has to rely on these simple cues or heuristics in order to try to approximately track what, okay. what the right choice would be. Last comment, and then we'll, uh, we'll pass over to the uh, to audience questions. Okay. Uh, so, uh, one concern that I have in our sort of general everyday notions of what is intuitive or what might be uh, sort of unconscious, particularly in the areas of uh, expertise. So, there's a, there's a lot that's made about sort of quick. Uh, intuitive decisions so you just you know you, you just scan something and you automatically know there's something not right about it um so th that's overplayed. So uh, the extent to which relying on intuition to help you make what most might characterize as a wise choice isn't clear. So you need to track the person over a long period of time to figure out how often they're making very deliberate choices as well as what might be characterised as a, an intuitive choice or an implicit choice or an instinctive one to figure out how often you'll be, you know, your instinct or your intuition is taking you in the right direction or the wrong direction. So I think that's, that's overplayed. So, uh, and in some of the work from Gigerenz actually will show that your, these heuristics, these sort of shortcut things that you, you allow you to sort of pick information that might be relevant works to an extent, but over long periods of time it doesn't. So you actually need to do a lot more thinking. So, but, you know, we... What, what, do, you know, what interests me is sort of the notion of how much we put into thinking so you know how how long does a thought take because so for instance if i say to you so actually hands up those of you who think that uh going down the stairs is automatic so walking down the stairs is automatic yeah a fair few of you so would you then sort of say well that's probably you know implicit you're not even thinking about it yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. Well, actually, you can't do that. You can't walk down the stairs even. Something that you would do a thousand, thousand, hundred thousand times over requires you to attend, minimally, but to attend. And if you're attending, then you're conscious, right? So even something that's sort of seemingly habitual that you're doing all the time requires 
some considerable processing power. So this illustration is just simply sort of a disconnect between what we sort of colloquially take to mean as instinctive and intuitive. You know, we, we didn't even think about it. Well, actually, you are thinking about it, but sort of notion scientifically of what processing is and sort of deliberate thought is slightly sort of, uh, you know, it's underplayed in, you know, the general sort of, you know, populace. So I think, you know, more needs to be sort of explored in terms of sort of thinking, what is a deliberate thought? Because actually, we do think quite a lot, <laughs> quite hard most of the time. <laughs> Okay, on that rallying cry for, for thinking, <laughs> uh, let's, let's uh, have some questions for the, from the audience. Um, uh, uh, ask you to um, say your name first uh, and just where you come from briefly, and we'll take um, a few questions at a time. So, a couple, two here, and then we'll respond to them from the audience. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm Philip Carl, I'm from Oxford. Sorry. Can you all hear? Or? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Uh, all right. Philip Corliss, uh, Oxford uh, Philosophy. Anyway, th th thanks for this. I thought this was a really uh, uh, very kind of coherent panel. Like it's, you, you, you hear all these panels where all people are sort of talking about different things, but I think here you think things kind of uh, uh, hung together really nicely. So he, here's maybe something... Um, uh, to bring uh, some of these themes together even more. So we, we're talking about uh, the role of intuitions and wise choices, and there were some cases where, like, at first it looks like, oh, maybe intuitions could be really good, but then maybe the empirical case for that or, or is sort of more dodgy when, when you look at it in, in detail. I wonder if, if there's a distinction that we want to make between wise choices when you're talking about goods, where the goodness is partly a response-dependent property and cases where you really have a clear objective of standard, like is this a good diagnostic in a clinical setting, for example, right? Because it seemed to me if you're if you're talking about say goods where uh, the goodness is really partly a response-dependent matter, then then maybe you could invoke kind of using writing on Christian's distinction a little bit. Maybe you want to distinguish something like a motivating reason in the context of choice and a motivating reason in the context of consequence, right? Because you might have cases where you sort of overthink uh, uh, what you should what you should pick, and then by overthinking it, you sort of your choice doesn't really reflect that well what your what your normal motivating reasons in a day to day case will be, and then you sort of might be a case where you're really not knowing yourself enough, and then you might not make a very good choice because you're not relying on your gut feeling that in fact will kind of drive how you actually perceive the consequence later on. So it's kind of just I'm, I'm wondering if you want to make those two distinctions basically. Um. Shall we take one more and then, or, yeah, let's do that, and then we'll address them both. Right. I'm Sasan. Spelling is S-A-S-A-N, if you want to know. And I'm coming from Birkbeck, University of London. It seems to me that once we, when we are talking about the wise decision, the thing is really missing from the argument is that wise decision from whose perspective? Decision maker's perspective or outsider? Because when I'm making a decision, from my point of view at the time, it is a wise decision. And if you're looking at the decision from outside, probably it's not a wise decision. We wouldn't know a decision is wise until we've done it. I can't say now, if I make this decision, that would definitely lead me to my goals and help me to fulfill my mission. So my um, conclusion from this argument is that at the time when we are making decisions, there's no such thing as wise and unwise. Decision is what I'm making at the time. 
even if I'm, I want to make a wise decision, that's my passion, that's my presuppositions, that's my disposition, my age, my culture, all my beliefs. I should take them all into account. And then once I'm making a decision, I can sit down and say, all right, the decision was wise or not. So I think this is like a dilemma when we want to talk about wise decision. It's like something we want to make objective, something which is absolutely subjective. It's variable from different person to person, time to time. So I think we can't distinguish wise decision from unwise before we make a decision and finish it. Okay. Um, I, I can handle the last question. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I would say no, I don't agree. <laughs> uh, so uh, as a psychologist, yeah, my job is to try and characterise, despite the sort of individual differences, what the basic patterns in the way people do things are. Is there anything you know, systematic about the way we do things? And generally there is. <laughs> you know, so there's a profession around that. Um, so, yeah, so the, the way we make decisions, so you, you, you would be saying, well, actually, because of the sort of wealth of different things that you know, make you unique <coughs> or different, uh, it would be very hard to sort of decide uh, objectively whether that's a wise choice or not. Okay, say, so one way around that, you could say, well, actually, what is the process by which you're making that decision? So let's just focus on the actual psychological processes. So are you making a snap decision without paying any attention to the information that's around you? Or are you actually focusing on the information, evaluating it in a certain way? Right, okay, but yes, okay, but yeah, these, some, some of these things are context dependent, granted. Um, but you, know, you, you, you may assign a value. Now, you may assign a value to whatever options there are based on all sorts of factors, cultural, uh, social, you know, educational, but you're still assigning a value to those particular outcomes and, and then trying to figure out which is the best one. So then, so somewhere in there, my job is to figure out, well, if I can characterise that decision-making process, then I might be able to say, is the process itself something that's actually wisely executed or not? I think Maria wants to comment as well. I mean, I think what you say is partly true, but I think I would make two points. One is that sometimes, as one is deciding uh, of failing to carry out one's decision or deciding to have one more drink, one can say, I'm going to regret this so much. This is such a bad idea. But you still do it. So it's not true that... Uh, you know, nobody, sometimes even yourself, never mind others, can, as you are choosing, say that was really a, that is a mistake. So that, that's one way in which I don't think what you say is always true. I think the truth of what you say is that, of course, saying the, I think this was maybe it's slightly behind Christian's question about the cars, I may be someone for whom aesthetic considerations are very important and utilitarian considerations of economy. So I'm prepared to make some sacrifices for the sake of not driving a car that I think is ugly. And for someone else, that doesn't matter very much. And I think, you know, we recognize that aesthetic value and, let's say, prudence are two genuine values. And some people are more risk-averse and therefore more prudent than others. Don't mind risk so much, but care about beauty. But So there are, but, you know, there is still, there is... In that respect, I think, uh, sort of um, space for 
different choices to be equally valuable. But both from one's perspective and from the perspective of others, it's also possible sometimes to say, look, that's, I mean, you know, if you choose the uh, destruction of the whole world rather than the scratching of your little finger, I think we can say that's a bad perspective <laughs> about choice from, you know, it's not a wise choice. Even if you think it is, it's not wise. That's exactly my point. We, uh, I can't say it about you, but you can't say about yourself. Oh, yeah, I can, can say it about you and about me. <laughs> you justify we need to backtrack to the, to the first question. Uh, I think Lisa has a couple of words. Yeah, but very briefly. Um, yeah, for me, it's really all about self-knowledge. That's what I'm interested in. And I completely buy what Magda and Christian have just said um, in the previous conversation. So first of all, it's not always clear what it is to be an intuitive decision and deliberative decisions. Um, and the system one, system two distinction is, is not as clear as philosophers and sometimes psychologists would like it to be. And there is a contribution from both ways of approaching the question, so thinking about reasons and going um, with the emotional response. And the reason why there is often this contribution, and we, so we can just say it was mainly deliberative or mainly an emotional response, is really for what Christian said, that sometimes the emotion is a very useful shortcut. So there are reasons behind it, but going back to the reasons would take too much time or too much effort. And so the emotion comes in as a very um, easy way to encapsulate quite a lot of knowledge. And I think this applies to the literature on expertise, where you replace emotion with intuition. So the intuition there is not mere intuition. It's intuition after years of experience where you've been going through very detailed, del del deliberative um, um, ways of reasoning. The other point uh, is about self-knowledge is this. We know pretty well what our emotions are. We don't know very well why we have the emotion that we have when we have it. At least that seems to be the message that we get from the psychological evidence. So sometimes the relying on emotions is good, but when we are asked for reasons why we feel in a certain way, that's where the confabulation starts, just because we are not really good at judging why we have a certain emotion. And I think that's what the message really was from the dating couples literature. We know how we feel, but we may not, what, we may not know reliably why we feel in that particular way. And the last point is about consistency, right? So uh, this really goes back to, to the other question as well. So sometimes we evaluate, we evaluate how optimal choices are, how wise choices are. We don't just go with expert judgment. We go with how consistent we are. So we choose something today. Is it still the good a good choice in you know, six months' time? Or is it what we believe in six months' time? Is it predictive of our behavior? Now, there are two sides to that. I mean, if we think that consistency is a good thing, then there will be a standard for the evaluation of wise choices. At the same time, a certain amount of flexibility in choices is also a virtue, I think. So the capacity to change your mind about things because you are considering different aspects or different issues. And so I think that question, when it's um, considered in the light of self-knowledge, is an interesting one. Are consistent choices, consistent with what we have um, deliberated before, always wise choices or always choices that reflect who we actually are? Or should we just acknowledge that we're pretty fluid in the way in which we make these choices? Um, which I think speaks also to, to the other question. So sometimes what is important to us changes across time. Um, we have a couple of questions over here. First, this gentleman is. Can put the hand up up the back if it. Oh, okay. You two are next. 
and Catherine. Dr. Keith, <clears throat> Dr. Keith Postler, um, Statistics and Methodology, LSE. Um, can you fit in David Kahneman's Nobel Prize work um, into your framework of wise or unwise decisions? Uh, I, I can take that. <laughs> so uh, uh, so I, I don't agree with Kahneman. <laughs> Uh, and I think he um, he's overstated the difference between what is fast thinking and slow thinking. The literature, at least the way I and various other people have reviewed it, suggests that um, at the very extreme end, there is no difference. So it's all part of one system. You could go with that very extreme radical view. Let's say we don't go with that. We just say that there's there are two systems. There's an intuitive one and there's one which is deliberate. Uh, in most cases, uh, there is a, a conflation of the two. So you can't. It's very hard to separate out a situation where you're not using some form of however you want to characterise intuition, however you characterise deliberate thinking. So the, these things will work uh, often in conjunction in almost everything that we do. So if you want to say, well, okay, you you maybe might be emotionally driven. So that's part of your intuition. Actually, uh, your emotional responses aren't just one single thing. They, you, you know, you, you're having conflicting emotions as well, which you then have to sort of think about, sort of and think the reasons through on some sort of more deliberate level. So, in answer to in brief, um, it doesn't fit because it's slightly wrong. <laughs> just briefly from Christian, and then. Yeah, just a very brief comment on this. Um, so uh, Kahneman, together with his collaborator Tversky, um, <clears throat> pioneered an area which is now known as um, behavioral economics. Um, in particular, um, going back to the 1970s, they, they were some of the first to um, identify so-called framing problems. Uh, those are cases where um, people uh, completely reverse or change their preferences uh, over exactly the same options, just if they are described uh, in an equivalent but slightly differently worded way, and that uh, was was a sh very startling insight uh, from the perspective of mainstream economic theorists who thought that only the objective qualities of the options matter and the, the description doesn't. Now, I think this has uh, definitely pioneered a hugely important research program, and by now uh, we have um, plenty of empirical evidence from studies in psychology and economics and related fields of how these framing effects uh, occur again and again in, in all sorts of different uh, realms of life, and the idea of nudging is sometimes associated with, with this. But what I think we still lack is a unified um, new um, theory of decision-making that you know, simultaneously explains all of these different uh, phenomena that have been documented both outside in the world and in the, in the psychology lab. And uh, so in this sense, I think they started a very important research program, but the, the quest for, for a new um, theory, improved theory of decision-making that is empirically adequate with respect to the psychological evidence, that's still very much open for the future. Thank you. Um, so my name is Darren Olgan. I'm a PhD candidate here at LSE uh, in philosophy. Um, thank you for that. It was all very interesting. Um, so it seems, maybe I'm being reductive or something along those lines, but uh, it seems we've used intuition and emotion in a way that 
it's kind of almost orthogonal or not or running parallel to reasons so that we have it, it seems to me that we're talking about them in, in terms of the ways that we just things that we want to do like, like the, the human passions that uh, Christian mentioned as opposed to the kind of things that we have reasons to do so I guess my question to the panel is along the lines of whether or not uh, so Maria mentioned that there may be our, our emotions may track the things that we have good reasons to do but I wonder whether or not just wanting to do something on its own can, according to the panel, uh, be a reason to do something. Thank you. I'm happy to start with that question. Um, I think the short answer is no. <laughs> um, I mean, I, let me say something about emotions, which I'm sure is implicit in what's been said, but I mean... Uh, one interesting thing about emotions um, is that we do assess them, as it were, for their appropriateness. So we sometimes think that it's appropriate for you to be angry, but not so angry, because the offence, they did offend you, but not so seriously. So we, we think that uh, emotions may be more or less justified according to what, as it were, the grounds for the emotion is. So although I think emotions are very distinctive and one shouldn't try to reduce them to reasons. Emotions are not only linked to reasons in the sense that they tell us uh, what might be of value, but also we assess them as more or less appropriately. Okay, now what about the question is, does the fact that I want to do something that alone give you a reason. So, I mean, this is very hotly debated in philosophy, and philosophers are pretty much divided uh, in this. Um, some people, and I'm inclined to agree with them, think that the fact that you want something, it's an indication that you view some good or some value in the thing you want, and the reason that you might have to do that thing is, as it were, the value that the reason has. If you are totally mistaken and there is no um, value in the thing you want, perhaps it's actually very bad for you, or perhaps it's worthless, to that extent the, you have less reason to satisfy the, the desire I, to do the thing you want. So I think desires are themselves quite closely connected to reasons in the sense that I think they depend on reasons. But, I mean, there is more to say, but that, that's the short answer. <laughs> okay. Um, um, yeah, so, okay, this gentleman at the back and then the, the lady in front. Thank you very much for this wonderful stimulating discussion. The unconscious, one of the first thinkers to, to bring that to the fore, of course, Sigmund Freud, who developed his own views. How far, well, or any member of the panel, how do you think Freud's concept of the unconscious is still relevant to what you've been discussing? Freud's concept of the unconscious and the relevance to what we've been discussing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can I have also the second question and then we'll uh, answer them as a panel? Sure. My name's Catherine. I'm a PhD candidate here in the Department of Philosophy. Um, so my question is, I suppose I want to know how to think about problems where it seems as though there's been one thought too many. So, for instance, I see a child is starting to get into difficulty swimming in a pond. They're not quite drowning, so it's not, it's not a case of I need to make an immediate decision. And so I'm trying to contemplate what the all things considered right thing to do is. Do I jump in and save the child or do I leave the 
child alone. And so I'm thinking about this really hard. Maybe I phone Mary and ask for her advice on this. And we just think that that's an inappropriate response, right? We don't think that I should be engaging in this all things considered judgment, even though time isn't really yet of the essence. We just think that I should know what the right thing to do in that situation is. And so I suppose I'm wondering what to do with those kind of cases. Perhaps relying on the unconscious. No, <laughs> um. um. <laughs> so I can take the unconscious one. Uh, how relevant is Freud's notion of the unconscious to the debate, or, gen- or in general, yeah. to the debate? Yeah. Uh, well, quite highly relevant, actually. So that, that doesn't mean to say it's right. It just is uh, something that is... Um, so in, in response to a comment earlier about um, Kahneman's work, so the Nobel Prize winner uh, in economics, uh, so in effect what he's done is sort of revive uh, some idea of the unconscious within an aspect of uh, our decision-making and our reasoning. So that is that some things that we do, we don't always know why we do them. We process information very quickly and... Um, uh, we may be very biased by the way we make decisions. Sometimes that can be good, but sometimes that, that can be bad. And they're sort of the the reasons now for why we need an unconscious is because uh, we're um, yeah we're overwhelmed with so much information that we need these sort of m- methods of actually making our world makes sense. That's a slightly different notion from what uh, Freud was saying, because Freud was saying aspects about why we might be motivated behind, you know, to do certain things that might be sort of buried in our unconscious. That's slightly different, but the notion of the unconscious, albeit slightly different from what Freud conceptualised it, is very much... Uh, of interest in psychology and beyond, I mean, uh, in behavioural economics now. So there's a lot of this stuff about how we're primed to make decisions in a certain way, how we're influenced by the world around us and sort of advertising and so on nudging uh, influences our behaviour without us even knowing whether we have control or not. So yes, it is certainly very relevant. I can reply to uh, Catherine. Uh, so this is the question of, you know, what about those cases where we have one thought uh, too many? Now, I would say that um, uh, figuring out what the normatively right thing to do is uh, doesn't generally require uh, processing absolutely all the information that is potentially available, but rather it um, it requires focusing on precisely the relevant considerations and a good theory of value tells us what the relevant considerations are. So that means a good theory of value rules in some properties or features of the choice options as relevant and rules out others as irrelevant. So for for instance, um, a good theory of value um, might tell us that when someone's life is at stake uh, the consideration that one particular choice option, namely helping the, the, the person in need would make my shoes wet. That is just an irrelevant consideration. So the theory of value here tells me I should not focus on that consideration uh, at at all. So the issue is not taking everything into account, but taking everything into account that is deemed relevant uh, by the appropriate normative um, conception of value. 
And yeah, maybe um, the way in which Christian was answering your question made me think of, uh, of Damasio and the somatic marker hypothesis, right? So um, Damasio had this um, neurological patient who, after uh, brain surgery, um, seemed to have reasoning perfectly unimpaired um, and so could, um, could um, solve all different types of uh, problems, uh, but had uh, very serious issues when he was trying to make decisions, even quite simple decisions, such as um, in which restaurant to go and have dinner. And it seemed as if um, he couldn't just stop the search for, for potentially relevant information. So you'd consider you know, the atmosphere and the kind of dining arrangement and the menu and the variety of the menu, but he couldn't come up with a decision. And this wasn't only in these fairly trivial choices, but uh, it was affecting his relationships, his capacity to keep a job and so on. And so Damasio came up with this idea that that um, actually what was not working was um, his emotional reactions. And basically, he seemed to have a completely flat attitude towards anything, even his own condition. And this was coming out even in the way he was talking about things. So one idea was that actually what the emotion was doing was to help out this process of identifying the most relevant information for each type of choice. And, and he was doing it in a way that was kind of uh, efficient, time efficient. Mm. And so lacking that capacity that we normally side with emotion uh, was actually preventing choice from being um, a, a good choice based on reasons, which again talks about the difficulty in separating kind of reason and emotion neatly in this case. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm buying his hypothesis, but it's kind of an interesting take on this idea of when do you stop the search for information. Um, I, I, did, I can just add briefly to this. So, uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm in agreement. At least the psychological literature will sort of support this, which is that, in effect... Um, Emotions are sort of valuation, so they're sort of a summation of the our memories of, of of a particular context. So they will allow a very quick access to something that might feel like the right thing to do, but that's based on sort of previous experiences of situations that we've had. So it allows us to make a very quick valuation of of what then we need to do because that's the right thing to do, and then we implement an action off the basis of that. So. So often, uh, emotion. The problem, the complexity is that um, emotions aren't just one singular thing. So when when studies look at actually people's emotional responses to things, they don't just have one emotional response to something. They have multiple emotional reactions to things, and so you have to spend some time sort of evaluating those things. So often that comes with, the, the clarity comes with sort of having rehearsed certain situations where it's much clearer to identify what the emotional response is for that particular sort of decision-making scenario. And, and in that case, sometimes you can make very wise choices on the basis of emotionally driven ones. Okay, great. Uh, I'm going to keep very good time this evening and thank you all for, for coming and for uh, some excellent questions. And I'd like you to join with me to thank our panel speakers.